Hi, and welcome to The Week in Women. I'm your host, Jill Filipovich, and this week I am coming into your ear from Rome, and so please excuse any background street noise. My Airbnb is lovely, but it does not have a podcasting studio. The Week in Women is a rundown of the week's gender and women's rights news, and it's available early for subscribers to jill.substack.com. So if you want to hear the podcast early, go to jill.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription, and you'll get The Week in Women before everyone else. This week, we're talking about the accused pedophile who was, until his arrest, a high-ranking staffer at Texas Right to Life the phenomenally brave woman pregnant with a fetus that doesn't have a skull, who is refusing to let the stigma of abortion drive her into silence about the cruel ordeal she's being put through, and Amy Coney Barrett's membership in a bizarro, misogynist Catholic cult. And our deep dive this week is into new rules from the National Abortion Federation that make it harder for providers to offer women medication abortion if those women are traveling from anti-abortion states, and why, contrary to the views of a lot of abortion rights su supporters who I read and respect, I think the Federation very well may be making the right call here. Luke Bowen, the political director of Texas Right to Life, or should I say the former political director of Texas Right to Life, which is the state's most influential anti-abortion group and the force behind penning Texas's abortion bans, was arrested on August 3rd for online solicitation of a minor. He was fired the same day. According to the criminal complaint, Bowen knowingly solicited a minor online with the intent of engaging in sexual contact or sexual intercourse or deviant sexual intercourse. After his arrest, Texas Right to Life scrubbed their website of any mention of him. My friend and independent feminist journalist Jessica Valenti reported in her substack, all in her head. The president of Texas Right to Life is John Sego, and if you've been following the saga of Texas's abortion bans over the last year, you've probably read his name. He was the person behind SB8, the novel Texas law that doesn't just outlaw abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, but allows anyone in the country to sue any person who, quote, aids and abets an abortion in Texas. And it's for Sego's organization that Luke Bowen was the political director. On Thursday, a Texas law went into effect that makes abortion punishable by a $100,000 fine and life in prison. The law offers virtually no exceptions. There's only one, and it's to save the life of a pregnant woman, and that can only happen in an acute emergency. So if you're a doctor, you're going to want to be pretty damn sure that a woman is going to die without an abortion before risking going to jail for life, which means that doctors in Texas are probably going to err on the side of letting women suffer significantly, which means that sometimes doctors are going to wait too long to give women the care they need. In other words, women will die because of this law. And because this law is just one of several anti-abortion laws on the books in Texas, the state has created total legal chaos for itself. This latest law is a trigger ban, meaning that it was triggered into enforceability the moment the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. It went into effect now because of a 30-day waiting period for implementation. 
But Texas also has SB 8 on the books, the law that awards people $10,000 if they sue anyone who aids and abets an abortion and if they win, basically creating a broad statewide incentive for any citizen to sniff out women who have had abortions and then sue anyone who may have helped them, from a concerned partner to a parent to an Uber driver. And Texas also has a third law on the books, this one dating back to 1857, that hands down a two- to five-year prison term for an abortion. And some of these laws arguably conflict, making Texas an incredibly confusing and dangerous place to practice medicine or to have a uterus. And Texas isn't the only state with a trigger ban that went into effect on Thursday. Idaho and Tennessee also began enforcing their abortion criminalization trigger laws that same day. So far, 13 states, all of them led by Republicans, have trigger laws that have gone into effect since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Some of those laws, including in North Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming, are currently being blocked because of court challenges. Nancy Davis, a stay-at-home mother of three who lives in Louisiana, has become an outspoken opponent of abortion laws that provide no exceptions for fetal anomalies after she found out that the fetus she's carrying does not have a skull and will either die in utero or soon after birth, and that she cannot get a legal abortion where she lives. I want you to imagine what it's been like to continue this pregnancy for another six weeks after this diagnosis, David said at a news conference in Baton Rouge. This is not fair to me and should not happen to any other woman. The new anti-abortion laws that were passed in anticipation of overturning Roe v. Wade and the many that are being passed now largely do not have exceptions for serious fetal anomaly. That means that a woman can have a very wanted pregnancy, as Nancy Davis did, and find out that her fetus has a serious condition, that the child will die soon after birth, or that it will live a short and extremely painful life. These kinds of serious conditions are often diagnosed in the second, or less commonly, even in the third trimester of pregnancy. This is devastating news for any woman to get. And carrying the pregnancy to term means risking your life and your health and undergoing the phenomenal pain of childbearing only to have a child who can't live or who may be in excruciating pain for their brief life. It also means moving through the world as a visibly pregnant woman with strangers congratulating you and asking, is it a boy or a girl? And being constantly reminded of your grief and terror. Some women may choose to carry doomed pregnancies to term. That is their right. But for women who would prefer to end those pregnancies, the process of carrying a pregnancy for nine, almost 10 months is nothing short of torture. A spokeswoman for Louisiana Right to Life the group that pushed state legislators to refuse to include an exception for fetal anomaly into the abortion criminalization law that also would jail doctors for 15 years for performing abortions, said that in cases like Nancy Davis's, where a fetus simply will not survive after birth, that her group would recommend support for families and perinatal palliative care from the moment of the diagnosis through the duration of the child's natural life. I am in such awe of Nancy Davis. She's going through one of the most painful and traumatic things any human being can experience. 
And not only is she speaking out about it, but she's advocating for her right to utilize a procedure that is illegal in her state and highly stigmatized elsewhere. She's doing so when she surely knows that the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. is cruel and violent and has hesitated not at all to target women like her. I mean, hell, they've gone after a 10-year-old rape victim and the doctor who helped her. And still, Nancy Davis is speaking out. The doctors told me that my baby would die shortly after birth, Davis said. They told me that I should terminate the pregnancy. But because of the state of Louisiana's abortion ban, they cannot perform the procedure. Basically, they said I had to carry my baby to bury my baby. In what I suppose counts as progress in one of the most reactionary and misogynist nations in the world, a few hundred women in Iran have been allowed into a football stadium to watch the sport. They were required to enter the stadium through a separate gate and were segregated off into their own female-only section under the watchful eye of female supervisors. Women have been barred from entering football stadiums since Iran's Islamic Revolution in 1979. FIFA has been pressuring Iran to allow women to watch the sport live, even threatening to suspend Iran from the association, and women have been able to attend a small number of national matches. Last week, though, was the first time women were allowed to enter the stadium for a league match. And earlier this year, women with tickets to the game who tried to enter the stadium to watch a match between Iran and Lebanon were pepper sprayed and violently held back by security guards. When one footballer mentioned the incident after the match, his comments were censored by Iranian media. A new report in The Guardian, and you can find this linked in the show notes because it is wild, details some of the disturbing writing and remarks of Dorothy Ranigan, the wife of People of Praise founder Kevin Ranigan. People of Praise is the fringe, far-right Catholic organization that Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett is a member of. She also lives with the Ranigans while in law school. During her confirmation hearings, her affiliation with this group was totally ignored, even though their extremist ideology and, frankly, cultish features should have been major cause for concern. According to the Guardian investigation, people of praises demands for female subservience to men were so extreme that Dorothy Ranigan told supporters at an event that some of the women— who are still in my women's group, as a matter of fact, were wearing sunglasses all the time because they were always crying and would have to hold on to their chairs every time somebody started teaching because what are we going to hear this time? The group demands that women obey their husbands completely. Several former members who, like Amy Coney Barrett, lived with the Rannigans as young women have made a variety of disturbing allegations against the Rannigans including one who said that Kevin Ranigan exerted total control over her life, from her finances to her dating choices. Another alleged that the Ranigans abused their children, tying their small daughters to their cribs with a necktie. And another said that Kevin Ranigan would shower with those same daughters, but when they were 10 and 11 years old. And People of Praise has been hit with many allegations of sexual abuse and impropriety among its members including sexual abuse of children. Let's also just be straightforward about it. This is a cult. The group requires members to live together as part of a covenant commitment. Members have to share part of their paychecks with the group. They speak in tongues. 
They hold prayer meetings that go on for hours and sometimes include exorcisms. They are highly secretive about what happens behind closed doors, and their leaders exert significant control over the membership. Only men are allowed to be in positions of authority, and the group preaches that women must submit to male leadership no matter what. Women who advise other female members of the group, because of course women cannot advise men, are called handmaids. Amy Coney Barrett was a handmaid. This is a cult. It's a patriarchal, misogynist cult. But the only reason it's not routinely labeled as such is because it's affiliated with the Catholic Church, and Catholicism is a mainstream religion in the United States. But yes, this is a cult. One of the justices currently sitting on the Supreme Court, who has used her position to strip women of our rights, including our right to abortion, is a member of a patriarchal misogynist cult that opposes women's rights and preaches that women must submit fully to men. The ideology of this misogynist cult is being broadly imposed on American women by a justice who does not believe in the separation of church and state and who rules based on her extreme religious views and not the laws of the United States of America. On Friday, top health officials in the Biden administration told states that they cannot use anti-abortion laws to block access to emergency care. Anti-abortion states are, of course, fighting this. And let that sink in. Abortion opponents are arguing that they should be permitted to prevent women from getting care in an acute health emergency if that care necessitates an abortion. In a novel and creative use of religious freedom arguments, Jewish groups in several states are suing over anti-abortion laws. Under Jewish law and tradition, these suits argue abortion is not just a right, but when a pregnant woman's life is at risk, an obligation. In Florida, a liberal Jewish organization has already filed suits, and in Ohio, another is joining up with the ACLU to challenge a six-week ban on abortions. And truly, God bless the Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple, two forces for consistent and fair application of the First Amendment's protection of both religious freedom and freedom from the government imposing or favoring one religion over another. The Satanic Temple has an abortion ritual for members who are ending pregnancies, which reportedly involves, according to the Idaho Capital Sun, repeating verses in a mirror to affirm bodily autonomy and repel any guilt, shame, or discomfort that can surface when undergoing an abortion. Texas's ban on abortions, the Satanic Temple says, violates their religious rights. And the Florida lawsuit is from a Jewish congregation and is one of several filed by a variety of religious groups, from Buddhists to Unitarians. It argues that Florida's abortion ban violates Jewish law and potentially criminalizes religious leaders from counseling their congregants on reproductive decisions. The lawsuit states, For Jews, all life is precious, and thus the decision to bring new life into the world is not taken lightly or determined by state fiat. As such, the act prohibits Jewish women from practicing their faith free of government intrusion, and this violates their privacy rights and religious freedom. 
if you subscribe to my Substack, you know that I've written quite a bit about how anti-feminism and authoritarianism routinely go hand in hand. Authoritarians often point to tradition as justification, and authoritarians and dictators are typically strongman figures who lean into hypermasculine caricature, a position that needs as its counter submissive women. This has been the case with the Republican Party in the United States and with authoritarian turns in various other governments, notably in Poland and in Hungary. And Hungary continues its hard right turn. Last month, the State Audit Office, which is close to the Hungarian leadership, published a report on education in the country, claiming that it has become too feminized and that educated women are problematically less submissive. With women graduating from high school at higher rates than men and attending college at high rates, and with more teachers being female than male, the authors of the report worry that Hungary's education system may be privileging feminine traits, they write, like emotional intelligence and social maturity. This is seemingly a problem. It is also, of course, very silly. There is nothing inherently female about emotional and social maturity any more that there is something inherently male about things like entrepreneurship or technical skills. Still, the authors of the report are worried that this better-educated female populace may result in lower birth rates and disadvantaged men. And this is part of a greater anti-feminist backlash in the country, which, as it often does, has come along with a slate of racist anti-immigrant laws and strict anti-gay laws that ban even the depiction of homosexuality to minors. In the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned, Yelp has announced that it will more clearly label anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers to be clear that they may not offer medical care and they may not have licensed medical staff on site. This is an important move. Crisis pregnancy centers typically intentionally mislead women into believing that they offer abortions, or into believing that they offer medical care. Many of them use various medical trappings, including ultrasound machines and employees who wear scrubs to work, to imply that they are healthcare facilities, when in fact they do not employ doctors, trained health workers, or trained ultrasound technicians. And after Yelp made this move, and after years of pressure, Google is finally following suit. They are clearly labeling clinics that provide abortions on Google Maps. In August, Bloomberg News reported that a search for abortion clinics in Google Maps returned anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers about a quarter of the time. In today's deeper dive into a single story, I want to talk about the new rules from the National Abortion Federation on funding medication abortions for patients coming from states that criminalize abortion. The story is this. The National Abortion Federation, which I'm just going to call NAF, N-A-F, from now on, is the single largest nonprofit funder of abortions in the U.S. They have a $7 million annual budget, and they funded roughly 10% of abortions nationwide in 2020. Much of NAF's funding comes from foundations affiliated with billionaire Warren Buffett. Carolyn Kirchner reports to the Washington Post that under new NAF regulations, any person whose abortion is being funded by NAF and who wants a medication abortion has to affirm in writing 
that they will take all of the pills in a state where abortion is legal. So typically, medication abortions include taking one dose of mifepristone, usually at the clinic, and then taking misoprostol 24 to 48 hours later. Many women coming into more liberal states from conservative ones that outlaw abortion take that first pill in the doctor's office, and then they drive or fly home with the rest so that they complete the abortion in the comfort of their own home. These new NAF regulations would discourage that and essentially tell women that they have to spend the extra money to stay in a more liberal state for the duration of the medication abortion, which can span over several days. This, of course, puts medication abortion even further out of reach for poor women, or really for anyone who can't afford transport out of state, a hotel, and several days off of work. There is no requirement that women have to abide by this rule. They do, however, have to sign a document saying that they plan to abide by it. Some abortion providers are understandably angry. It's hard enough to make that trip, even if you return home the same day, an abortion provider in New Mexico told The Post. Now my patients are being further regulated unnecessarily by a so-called ally. And many feminist writers who I agree and respect have also joined in on criticizing NAF's decision. But I'm a little more hesitant. It's not because I like NAF's decision. I don't think that women should have to take abortion-inducing medication in states where abortion is legal. But if I were their lawyer, I may have given NAF the same advice. We are in a very novel legal environment with a very aggressive anti-abortion movement that has as tools novel and extreme laws. The anti-abortion movement has passed laws that are unlike anything we saw pre-Roe and are frankly unlike any other law that has ever been on the books. Many of these laws don't just criminalize performing abortions. They also criminalize aiding and abetting abortion, which is extremely broad and certainly covers what NAF does. Laws like SB8 in Texas, which have been a model for other states, allow anyone to sue any entity that aids and abets an abortion in Texas. That means that Texas Right to Life can ostensibly sue the National Abortion Federation if NAF aids and abets a woman who ends her pregnancy in Texas. And there's a real question of whether any person or entity that assists a woman who completes a medication abortion in Texas has broken that law. The reality is, the reality is that the first pill a woman takes in a medication abortion, misopristone, stops the pregnancy from growing. The next round of pills, misoprostol, are what push the pregnancy out of the body. So you can certainly argue that it's the first pill or pills that constitute the end of the pregnancy. But by the time you're making that argument, you're in court. I have no doubt that entities like Texas Right to Life will target entities like NAF under the Texas law. Anti-abortion groups will sue the hell out of pro-choice ones any chance they get. They will absolutely make it their mission to bankrupt organizations that fund abortion, and certainly those individuals who provide abortions. That means 
any person who volunteers to answer calls to the NAF hotline runs the risk of total financial ruin if they are found to have aided and abetted an abortion in Texas or in a state that passes a similar law. And it doesn't seem sustainable to ask the Buffett Foundation to simply fund the defense of never-ending abortion-related lawsuits, especially when abortion care is already woefully underfunded. I realize this may be an unpopular opinion among fellow people who support broad access to reproductive health care, but I also understand why NAF made the rule that it did. And frankly, I think we need to talk about whether this strategy of dispensing abortion-inducing medication in liberal states for women to complete taking in conservative ones is a good strategy at all. As you know, if you've listened to this podcast or read my newsletter, I am a big, big fan of medication abortion, and I am a big supporter of getting abortion-inducing medications into the hands of anyone who needs those medications, may need them, or knows anyone who may need them. In other words, get these medications into everyone's hands. Groups that are based in Europe, for example, and mail abortion meds to women in places like Poland or Texas are doing crucial work. But when we're talking about women who have already traveled to liberal states for abortions and who reside in states where abortion is criminalized and where aiding and abetting abortion is criminalized, I have to wonder why medication abortion is put on the same plane as procedural abortion. That is, abortions done by a doctor through a simple procedure rather than via meds. This is really tricky territory to get into because obviously as pro-choice people, we want women to have as many options as possible. But women don't have as many options as possible in the landscape in which we are all now living. And women need to know the relative risks of each option. Medication abortion is overwhelmingly safe and it is overwhelmingly effective. But it is not as effective at completing an abortion as procedural abortion. By that I mean, statistics vary but the most reliable ones I can find indicate that somewhere around 4% of medication abortions will not complete, and a woman will have some products of conception left in her uterus. Sometimes that just resolves itself naturally. But often, a woman will need or want to complete the abortion, and that can happen sometimes by taking more medication, but often by essentially having a procedural abortion. Luckily, medication abortion, as I said, is super, super safe. So even when this happens, it's not like a woman is typically going to wind up dead. But having products of conception left in your uterus can pose a risk of serious infection. If a woman who has had a medication abortion needs to then have a procedure to complete an abortion, that's not something she's going to be able to do in a state that bans abortion. A 4% incompletion rate is really, really low, but in real terms, it's still four women out of every 100 who had a medication abortion. And to fully math that out, in 2020, there were more than 500,000 women who had medication abortions in the US. If 4% of them had incomplete abortions, we're talking about more than 20,000 women. And right now, over a third of U.S. women live in a state where abortion is outlawed. 
This isn't to discourage medication abortion or suggest that they're dangerous. Frankly, medication abortion is a great option. It's now the preferred option for women who end their pregnancies. Somewhere around 54% of abortions in 2020 were done via medication. For women living in states that ban abortion, it may even be preferable to order medications online and to start and end their abortion in the privacy of their own home. So again, this is not me suggesting that medication abortion is dangerous uh, or somehow not preferable to other methods. For many women, it is, and pro-choicers should continue to try to get medication abortion into women's hands. But it is to say that the most common complication of a medication abortion is an incomplete abortion. And that's a problem that isn't going to surface for several weeks after a woman has taken the medications. And it's a problem that women who live in anti-abortion states are going to have a very hard time solving. Procedural abortion is also overwhelmingly safe, and it's also not risk-free. The most common complication of procedural abortion is infection. And that's a problem that can be addressed with antibiotics. And it's also an extremely uncommon complication if prophylactic antibiotics are given to an abortion patient to take in the days immediately following the procedure. Antibiotics remain accessible in anti-abortion states if an infection occurs. Procedures to complete an incomplete abortion, though, do not, meaning that a woman who comes to a liberal state for abortion pills takes them at home and then has an incomplete medication abortion in a conservative state may wind up either in an emergency room hoping for the best or forced to travel again. And the very existence of a woman showing up to an ER or a doctor's office with an incomplete abortion in a state that criminalizes abortion is somewhat likely to trigger some sort of investigation and very possibly serious criminal or civil penalties for anyone who helps her. These are not fun conversations for abortion rights supporters. It does not feel good to suggest that the care on offer should differ depending on where a woman lives, or that doctors should encourage women who live in conservative states to select an abortion method that is less and less popular and less preferable for a good chunk of women. But doctors absolutely should sit down with women and explain the various risks and benefits involved. And the risks of medication abortion are simply different for women who live in anti-abortion states than for women who live in states that support abortion rights. Again, medication abortion, like procedural abortion, overwhelmingly physically safe. But in our new legal context, in the country in which we are all living, women who live in states that criminalize abortion are facing different risks, legal risks, personal risks, than women who live in states that allow the procedure. This is not to discourage the use of medication abortion. Medication abortion is hugely, overwhelmingly safe. It is private. It is the preferred option now of a majority of women who have abortions, and for very, very good reason. In my ideal world, every person in the country would have abortion-inducing medications stocked in their medicine cabinet. It is only to say that we are in a novel 
and terrifying new legal context. And that is especially true for women who live in conservative states. And to the extent that those women are traveling to more liberal states to end their pregnancies, they have a right to be informed of not just the physical risks of both methods of abortion, which are incredibly, incredibly slim, but also of the risk of what happens if the abortion doesn't complete and what their next steps might be. And that's it for the week in women. Thank you, as always, for listening. Remember, if you subscribe to jill.substack.com, you get the week in women before everyone else. And if you're enjoying the show, I am always grateful if you rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Bye.